Welcome back to the Oxford Policy Pod and Happy Earth Month. My name is Roshan Melwani, and I'm currently reading as a Master of Public Policy student at the University of Oxford's Blavatnik School of Government. This week, we're diving into a topic that is growing ever more prescient as the world's temperatures continue to rise, climate migration. Our climate is changing faster and more aggressively than at any point in modern civilization. These changes in temperature, weather patterns, and the severity of weather events are exacerbating humanitarian vulnerability. With no end in sight, climate change has induced people to be displaced from their homes, lose their livelihoods, face weakened governments, and even suffer from conflict. However, the reality of climate-induced migration is complex, multi-causal, and context-specific. Understanding this policy area is challenged by a wide range of reasons for human mobility, combined with uncertainties surrounding future climate scenarios, the progress of adaptation efforts, and the responses of international organizations and governments. To discuss, I'm joined today by Dr. Nina Hall, an Assistant Professor of International Relations at the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. She previously worked as a lecturer at the Hertie School of Governance and was a policy officer at the New Zealand Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Her research focuses on international organizations, transnational advocacy, climate adaptation, and global refugee governance. Dr. Hall has written the seminal book entitled Displacement, Development, and Climate Change, exploring how international organizations have evolved their mandates over time to incorporate the climate change agenda. Let's delve into the insights offered by Dr. Hall in her book to explore how global humanitarian institutions can remain fit for purpose to respond to the challenge of climate change. Nina, thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks, Roshan. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. So, Nina, I think let's just dive straight in. Um, for general listeners, uh, what is Uh, displacement in the context of climate change and what challenges do you think it poses to policymakers? Yeah, great question. And that sort of was the starting point for my PhD research, um, which you mentioned. I I did a PhD at Oxford um, over 10 years ago now, starting in 2009. And at the time that I was starting my, my work, I was coming from New Zealand where there were a lot of debates about how climate change would affect people in particularly the Pacific Islands. And there was a concern, as, as many of your listeners are probably aware, that climate change would lead to increased displacement as people in the Pacific context um, would see rising sea levels. Um, one of the big issues there is also the inundation of uh, salt water or saltwater intrusion into groundwater so that before the waters are lapping at your feet, they're actually you don't have any uh, drinking water or water for, for agriculture. Um, and that phenomenon is often referred to as sort of climate displacement or climate-induced displacement. Um, and I sort of was reading about it and thought, well, what, what are we doing? What are the global institutions doing? Um, and of course, uh, once I got to Oxford, uh, I had a series of debates which actually threw up a bigger set of questions about, is this even a useful concept? How do we define it? Because uh, within the migration scholarship, a lot of people... Uh, problematize the concept of climate-induced displacement. They say there are many factors and you can't just pinpoint one. You can't just say climate is causing people to move because often there's political, economic, social factors that overlay that. And so my PhD uh, journey was a lot about trying to get my head around how do we conceptualize this concept as scholars and how is the international community defining 
uh, the relationship between climate change and migration. And in fact, there's a whole chapter in my book which looks just at that, the issue linkages, the way that concepts like climate change are linked to migration and displacement. That's that's fascinating, Nina, because, um, you know, given the amount of time that you've you've spent researching uh, the area of climate displacement, I can see, you know, how, you know, being from New Zealand, um, the the how how that how the work you've done um you know it's it's a very it's a very pressing issue um you know in the context of 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 the pacific and so you in 2016 you published this book called displacement development and climate change um so i wanted to ask you um what motivated you um to then you know spend even further time to to research specifically on the issue of um international organizations and understanding their mandates to address address the climate displacement? Yeah, so as you said, I had a book which, which drew on my, my PhD research. And going back to that period of 2009, there was a lot of debate internationally about the impacts of climate change, particularly on natural systems or like the environment. We saw, you know, posters of polar bears and how they were going to be stranded as the Arctic, you know, melted. But there had was starting, but it was a very sort of um, initial phase of debates about the humanitarian impacts of climate change, how climate change would affect people, particularly in developing countries or in the global south. And so when I, as a scholar of political science and international relations, started to think about it, I was like, well, we have a whole lot of existing institutions internationally. We have the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, the UN Development Programme, um, a number of other humanitarian institutions and development institutions that whose mandate is to think about what happens in the global south, whether it be you know natural disasters or you know conflict. So I kind of got curious to think, well, how are they adapting to this evolving challenge of climate change? Because we know and we knew then that climate change was going to have a big impact, and mostly in the global south. And the more I dug into it, the more I realized that first, there wasn't really any scholarship on how existing institutions are adapting, but yet there was an emerging policy debate about the need for new sorts of frameworks. And so some people were saying, we need a new legal treaty for climate refugees, for instance, that was being debated at the time. Um, and there was also a lot more funding being promised. So I attended the Copenhagen uh, Climate Summit in 2009, COP15. And that was the summit where there was a hundred billion being promised per year for climate finance. And so suddenly there was this policy opening and debates and discussions happening, as well as a whole lot of new funding being promised. But it was still a very evolving space in terms of, well, how do we best support people in developing countries, both through humanitarian development assistance, to adapt and prepare for the impacts of climate change. So that that was kind of the context for me writing. And then um, I followed a series of debates happening within the UN High Commission for Refugees and the International Organization for Migration about how they were developing uh, their own work to deal with climate change. Yeah, I mean, with with cli- with climate change, what's been fascinating is that for the longest time, it's always seemed the discourse around it had been very technocratic, and the the linkage with um, concepts of, you know, displacement, the humanitarian consequences that may arise from climate change has been something that had always seemed to be missing. 
um, from the discourse. And uh, it's it's very interesting how like in the last, you know, in the last, I think, decade or so, like increasingly people are able to connect the dots and and notice that, you know, as people's lived realities actually start to change, then you actually are able to realize like how um, climate, the, the climate crisis is essentially a, is a humanitarian one. Um, and I think for, for that reason, it's very important for like institutions like, you know, the UNHCR, like the IOM to be, uh, to be getting involved given, you know, their expertise, their, their existing mandate to, to protect those, you know, facing persecution. And so like given their, their mandates, I wanted to ask you, um, uh, perhaps would you be able to elaborate a little bit more on um, some of the findings that you had in relation to uh, the reasons why you noticed certain changes in the mandates in organizations like the UNHCR, IOM, and the UNDP? Sure. Um, so a key starting point for my research is all those three organizations you named were set up in you know the post-war era when climate change wasn't conceived as a problem so they were set up before we were thinking about these questions of the impact of climate change and so their mandates were not exclu- uh, uh, explicitly on climate change and displacement or the impacts of climate change on migrants and and the question that i asked in the book was how have they evolved over time and to what extent have we seen a mandate a significant change in their mandate endorsed by the executive board And what I find is that across these three organizations, there are changes, significant changes, but not all of them constitute like a real change in the official mandate endorsed by the executive board. So there's variation between the three. And I'll take UNHCR and IOM as the two examples because they link most closely to climate change and displacement debates. And also they they present a kind of uh, two ends of a spectrum of change. So on the one hand, we have IOM, which for those listeners who aren't familiar with it, it is the international organization responsible for migrants in the broadest sense, but they do a remarkably broad array of work. And this is one of the findings, really, is that as an organization, um, they're much more operational. Most of their funding uh, is earmarked for specific projects by states. Um, And earmarked funding has actually become a real problem across the UN system. Um, And what that means is that if a state wants a piece of work to be done, it can fund it and the organization will do it. It doesn't have a legal mandate for protecting migrants. It's not the same as UNHCR, which has a legal uh, mandate for protecting refugees. And that's important because it's much easier then for it to expand into new areas. And so the book shows how over time, IOM, both through staff, through the bureaucrats identifying climate migration as a new issue, putting it on um, the the sort of agenda of states, expanded both research and policy capacity in this area, as well as doing more and more operations. And I spent time in Kenya looking at some of their work around uh, adaptation and working with pastoralists to think about the impacts of climate change. So the overarching story there is that IOM expanded. It had, you know, I sort of chronicle in the book dozens and dozens of new projects around climate change and migration. And over time, their executive board, their member states who, who granted a mandate, who give it authority, um, accepted that and discussed the importance of climate change and migration. Now, that story contrasts quite dramatically with the role of UNHCR because UNHCR 
has a much more prescriptive, narrow mandate. Um, and that comes from states to protect refugees. And refugees are very narrowly defined, right, under the Refugee Convention for people crossing an international border, fleeing persecution based on five particular grounds. So while we talk about climate refugees in the public context, it's a much that, that doesn't fall under the definition of the Refugee Convention. And why I'm giving you this level of detail is because when UNHCR staff, and particularly the High Commissioner, Antonio Guterres, the current UN Secretary General, his previous in his previous role as the High Commissioner for Refugees, he pushed for an expansion of UNHCR's mandate. He said, look, there's new drivers of displacement, and we as an organization have to help displaced people, not just refugees, not just the narrower conception of, of who are refugees. We have to have a much broader conception, and we are the right UN agency to be doing this work. Um, and he and he worked quite uh, strongly to to push this agenda with member states, including hosting a conference um, with uh, the Norwegians, uh, co-hosting which led to the Nansen Initiative. Um, and and but what's important there is member states push back. So they said, you know, that's all very well that you have this expansionary agenda, but when a ministerial conference was held, and I believe it was twenty eleven. Um, they said, we're not going to sign up to this more expanded view that UNHCR should fulfill protection gaps in the international uh, sort of legal uh, frameworks. And one of those protection gaps could have been for people displaced or uh, by climate change and, and associated effects. So in the end, what we see is that UNHCR, while it has expanded some areas of its work, it hasn't had an overall mandate change. It hasn't been uh, given the authority by states to try and really take on this issue in terms of legal protection of trying to offer people who are displaced um, some some new frameworks if it's displaced by climate change. Uh, so I think the, the key kind of message for me at a theoretical level is that bureaucrats can play a role. So leaders of international organizations can put new issues on the agenda and in some cases even see a mandate expand. But it is a back and forward between states and the staff of international organizations. And I've worked actually with uh, Nairi Woods, the Dean of Blavatnik, and we've written on the role of executive heads um, in international organizations and, and other subsequent work. On the last point that you just mentioned, the, uh, uh, the importance of executive heads and the staff um, in organizations to, to, uh, to catalyze mandate change, uh, it seems to me that the UNHCR seems to be a little bit caught between two competing impulses. Um, on the one hand, um, as in your book, you mentioned, you know, if the UNHCR does not focus and protect refugee rights, then it raises the question of who will. Yet on the other hand, uh, there's no doubt uh, that those who are displaced um, for reasons that you know pertain to climate change are also in extremely uh, you know, vulnerable situations. And uh, there then becomes this question of how should the UNHCR use its expertise and operational presence to assist displaced, pe displaced peoples. And going forward, the, the, the issue of climate displacement naturally is likely to only intensify. And for that reason, do you have any thoughts on perhaps how... Um, executives or bureaucrats within these organizations 
can continue to to move given the competing uh, uh, impulses and constraints they face? Hmm. I think there's a couple of things. First is the assumption that bureaucrats should do something different from what states want them to do. And I think that can be problematic because we have to remember that intergovernmental organizations are set up between governments to deal with global public goods issues. So the very premise of them is that they are helping the the globe, the international community, to solve big problems. Um, And their funding predominantly comes from states. So they're accountable, in a way, back to taxpayers through member state representatives. Now, I think where the, the issue lies is when they become captured by a particular state. So if, for instance, the US or the UK or New Zealand, where I am at the moment, says, IOM, UNHA, you should only focus on this. We're going to give you the money. And regardless of what Kenya or Bangladesh or Kiribati or Tonga says, this is what you're going to do. Because the whole the whole uh, point is to be a multilateral institution, to incorporate multiple members' states' views, and in doing so, hopefully resolve global public goods issues. Um, and the reason I set that out is because that tension, I think, uh, is a really critical one that IR scholars have increasingly tried to understand how how do we understand the principal agent which you may have studied um, of, of, of a collective set of principles as in the member states delegating to an international organization to do something now what I think has become increasingly difficult though in, in laying that out is that a number of um, international organizations have a large proportion of their budget which is funded by uh, earmarked funding So if we take IOM as an example, over 90% of their funding comes in the form of earmark funding. WHO, World Health Organization, actually is is similar. It's seen a massive increase um, from, and over 80% of their funding is earmarked. And that is important because it's a a sign of um, multilateralism being eroded. Because earmarking means that one state is saying, this is the priority for the organization. This is where we want you to put your money rather than saying we want the organization to be funded to work on its core issues, say refugee protection, and that is defined and will be implemented by what staff want uh, or how they interpret that mandate. So so what I'm trying to sketch here is, is an idea that we want multilateral organizations to be accountable to states. They get their funding from them, but they need to have the flexibility as the bureaucrats need to be able to interpret, well, who are the most in need if we think of a refugee crisis? It's not for the U.S. government to say, we define this community as most in need. It's for the the staff of UNHCR to do that based on their professional expertise. So they're constrained often by funding, not just the quantity, but also the quality of the funding that they get. In that case, do you feel that as funds continue to be increasingly earmarked as a trend, is that an intractable problem? What are ways in which that can be resolved? Yeah, so this is actually something uh, Nari Woods and I talked about in our in our other article about the role that executive heads can play in pushing for their member states to give an increase in non-earmarked funds. And I've been following this debate a little bit uh, recently in the WHO, partly because of the, the crisis that has ensued that organization around its response to, to the COVID pandemic. 
And um, just in the last week, a number of leaders, including Helen Clark, former head of the UNDP, Grasso Michelle, Alan Johnson CLF, Paul Martin, so a number of former uh, leaders um, have written an open letter, oh, Gordon Brown as well. They collectively wrote an open letter saying the WHO needs to be better funded and it needs to be funded uh, a majority of non-earmarked uh, funding. And so there is a push, there is an increasing awareness by uh, you know, international leaders, uh, heads of international organizations, and by some states that recognize that this earmarked funding is undermining multilateralism. Um, and I think, however, it can be quite a technical issue. It can be quite hard to get publics involved in this sort of debate. International institutions are quite far away. There's often not that much monitoring of it. So I think that's a good example of where um, thinking about how do we communicate these issues? How do we explain why it's so important that these organizations have non-earmarked funding uh, is really an important one, both for scholars and people who may be technical experts in this area. Because I think until, uh, you know, there's a broader debate about these sorts of things, it can, it can be quite difficult to, to get support because there's a, there's a tendency to want to control taxpayers' money and to ensure that it serves those taxpayers rather than an awareness of actually the best way often that that, that funding, uh, say, from the British or the US government can be used is actually in enabling those organizations to do their jobs well. You published your book in 2016. Um, and since then, a lot has happened. And five years on, the question that I want to ask you is, uh, what progress do you think has been made or hasn't been made mm. in in the realm of international organizations to trying to do things to address climate displacement? So it's, yeah, it's a great question. When I published my book, Brexit hadn't happened, the election of Trump, the sort of surge in populism. Um, and in those intervening years, there's been a real pushback against multilateral institutions uh, and an undermining, really, of, of public faith that those institutions are serving them well. And some of those critiques are probably worthwhile scrutinizing. There's some validity, right, that not all our international institutions, like, for instance, the WTO, hasn't served many communities well. But there's also been, I think, a knee-jerk reaction that they're serving some kind of globalist elite agenda um, and hence, you know, a negative per se. And so in the space, particularly around climate and displacement, um, what happened really after I finished my core primary research was that the debates around climate change and displacement became, A, quite technocratic, so that and B, they became more about um, non-binding voluntary agreements. And I think the latter is quite interesting because we see that increasingly in global governance, that clubs or small groups of states come together and say, we sign up to this and we think this is a good idea, but it's not an international agreement with legal force like you know, the UNHCR Refugee Convention. So groups of states came together to to sign up um, and push forward the Nansen Initiative, which is all about uh, people affected by climate change and shared best practices about how you could help people who are affected by climate change. But that wasn't a binding agreement which set out new norms or standards. Similarly, we saw the Global Compact on Migration, 
that started, um, it was a two-year negotiation process that wound up in uh, 2018. And that's an interesting process because it was started out as an intergovernmental negotiation, just like the UNFCCC is. But there was real pushback uh, from Trump. Um, he pulled the US out of this negotiation, as well as a number of other countries, Hungary, Australia, Poland, expressed skepticism or didn't sign up to it or abstained. And the final output was a non-binding agreement. It didn't set out new norms, but it talks about climate change and displacement. Um, and, and I mentioned that because I think it's a really interesting uh, agreement to look at and to think about, well, what, why were people taking issue with it? What were the substantive issues? And what kind of agreement is it? Are we moving into a space now in international relations where it's increasingly hard to get formal agreements, to get all states to sign up to one thing? But what we see more is these kind of club agreements of, of certain groups of states. So the, the short answer to all of that is that we haven't seen a new treaty for climate displaced peoples, and nor, in my view, should is that the necessary best outcome. But we have seen technical uh, sort of discussions of the impacts of climate and displacement. And it, the debate has continued in the global or international policy space within a number of different venues, such as the Nansen Initiative or the Global Compact on Migration. So you mentioned the trend towards non-binding voluntary agreements in the realm of global governance, especially in the context of climate migration. Uh, what opportunities and challenges do you think lie ahead with, uh, with this approach? Well, I think the, the main challenge is um, you're not going to see a global framework that spells out set obligations that all states have to accept somebody who's moved partly because of, of climate change. And I, I should just explain my position here that I don't think a global treaty is necessarily the best way forward in the first place, but a number of people advocated for a global treaty for climate refugees out of a sense that an increased uh, precision and obligation would be a good thing and help that community of, of affected peoples. The challenging thing is, and I talked about this at the beginning, is defining who exactly is a climate refugee. So how would you go about having that debate if you saw somebody and say, well, why did you leave? Was it because your crop failed? Was it because water intrusion? And those, there are multiple factors which will impact on whether climate change and how climate change impacts people. So to give you a, another concrete uh, example of this, the people most affected by climate change aren't always those that move. So if we think about Hurricane Katrina, the people that stayed behind that weren't displaced in Hurricane Katrina were actually the poorest, right? So if we focus our categories on just people who were displaced by a natural disaster, we might actually miss the people most in need. And there's a second really important dimension here is that often people want to remain. So in the Pacific Islands, uh, a lot of people said we don't want to move. And actually New Zealand came up with a humanitarian category for climate displaced peoples, uh, led by James Shaw, uh, the climate change minister. And they actually scrapped it. They were like, actually, this isn't what people in the Pacific want. They don't want a category. They don't want to be seen as climate displaced refugees. So I guess what I would say is that while they're very good and strong uh, 
reasons why people have wanted to push for this treaty. I don't know that a treaty for people displaced by climate change is going to help the A, the people most in need, um, and B, is it what many want? I think what needs to happen is a much stronger commitment to the Refugee Convention, better distribution of refugees globally. People, you know, why is it that developing countries have most refugees and not developed? Secondly, we need to see more mitigation and adaptation for climate change, more financing for countries to adapt to climate change. So actually, for me, the answers by the end of my book lay in other regimes. They weren't in getting a treaty, but actually in addressing the the root causes in other ways. You know, on the note that you mentioned just now about how those who who, who suffer from, from climate change often do not actually want to, um, uh, to leave uh, where, where they're from, um, would you be able to elaborate a little bit more on in the context of, of the Pacific, some of the challenges that you, uh, that you see with low-lying uh, Pacific Island states? Sure. And I should, um, before I'm doing that, acknowledge that the context of the Pacific Islands is very different from, say, Kenya, where I did my research, or Bangladesh, where, you know, Southeast Asia, there'll be millions affected by climate change, or East uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, where, you know, we're going to see increased drought. Like, in a way, this is part of the challenge that creating an international legal framework um, can't encompass all the different experiences that we're seeing worldwide. Um, so with that premise, um, a number of the Pacific Island states are low-lying countries, so they don't have a lot of high ground, like Tokelau, for instance, which is actually in the realm of New Zealand. Uh, I don't think is much higher than one metre above sea level. So as we see an increased sea level, that's going to be a really big issue. Um, in terms of agriculture, as I mentioned, salt water is going to intrude and get into groundwater, and that will be a ma- massive problem for how those countries access drinking water and also water for, for crops. Um, we're also seeing, you know, other increased storms and um, other forms of natural disasters in that area. So these are these are issues that Pacific Islanders have written about. And actually, I'd really encourage your listeners to to read one of it, a book that I edited um, with some great Pacific writers, including Tulia Thompson. Um, she's written all about. Uh, as a Pacific New Island New Zealander, about how she sees climate change impacting. Um, we also have Tina Ngata, who's Māori and has written a lot about the need for Indigenous peoples to be at the decision-making table. And I think that's a really interesting thing. I'm back in New Zealand right now on my sabbatical, engaging with a lot of the debates happening here. And there are some incredible activists and thinkers India Logan Riley was one of the key speakers on the first day of the UNFCCC in Glasgow. And India is a climate activist um, and part of, uh, of a delegation of Indigenous activists who've been pushing hard and for decades on this. So I guess I would just say that there's a lot of writing that's happening and I would en- encourage your, your listeners to go out and I'm happy to, to share the links with you and um, encourage your, your listeners to, to, to read some of this material. I'll make sure to to have that shared in the link um, below the podcast. Um, so I know, and finally, I just want to turn a little bit more with the time that we have left to some of the more recent work that you have been doing. As I understand, you have been doing some research in the area of uh, transnational advocacy um, and climate uh, activism. So... Uh, in at least in in the realm of 
climate and refugee advocacy, what are some of the trends that you have um, noticed in these spaces? Sure. So after finishing my book on the UN system, I got really interested in activists um, and their sort of ability to, to push for change. And because the, the theoretical questions I'm interested in, how do we see change in international affairs? What pushes for norm change and for international sort of new legal frameworks? Um, and I started looking at uh, a group, which some of your listeners may be familiar with, Move On in the US, um, is a digital advocacy organization that pioneered in the late 90s uh, rapid response, multi-issue and member-driven activism. What this looks like is that they pivot between issues really quickly. They'll campaign on climate change, on refugee issues, on um, pushing for democratic candidates in the US elections, right through to more local issues like uh, saving a library or, you know, whatever their members care about. And this form of organization has spread globally. And we have organizations now in over 20 countries from Germany, Hungary, Sweden, New Zealand, South Africa. And at times, um, they have campaigned on climate change. And one of the chapters of my books looks at how digital forms of organizing have enabled climate activists. And a key finding is that uh, what we've seen is increased distributed protests where we have organizations around the world or chapters, say, of the Youth Climate Strike or uh, 350.org organizing uh, for climate action. And what's distinct about these is they're happening on the same day at on the same issue, but with different targets. The key is that we have global protests, but the target is national decision makers. So rather than targeting the UNFCCC or another international institution, activists see the nation state as the most important uh, locus of power, and that's where they channel their political action. And that, that's important because often we've thought, oh, digital organizing means we're part of a transnational community, we'll all be you know, interested in engaging in international institutions, but actually... You might use digital technology to enable you to do connected national actions, right? So that each country and even within countries, you'll see, you know, actions in a city or in a small town, um, but that they have a united international message by, by uh, thanks to the internet. So, yeah, I'd encourage um, people to read that. The book's coming out in, in June um, with Oxford University Press, Transnational Advocacy in the Digital Era. And it'll explore these sorts of new forms of activism. Well, I, I don't want to give too much away from the book, but um, perhaps to tease our readers, uh, our listeners a little bit. Um, were there any uh, examples from your research of positive developments uh, or positive impacts that that came from digital activism that focused on states being the locus, uh, being the locus of um, of power, as you meant, as you say. Sure. So one of the examples I, I look at is around 2015, um, when there was an increasing number of refugees coming into Europe. It's often called, unquote, unquote, the refugee crisis. Um, although many people have pointed out, you know, who was it a crisis for? Was it really a crisis at all? Um, and during that time period, we saw uh, a number of activist groups pushing campaigns to welcome more refugees in their countries. Um, and what this looked like in the UK, 38 Degrees, uh, which is a digital advocacy organization I study, started a campaign 
where they asked their members and the broader public to sign petitions demanding their councils welcome more refugees. So in this case, it was actually even more local. Um, and that they got thousands of signatures um, and also many donations to try and support the refugee uh, effort in, in the UK. And they were one of a number of organizations, right? 38 Degrees wasn't the only doing work in September 2015 to, to push the British government to accept more refugees. And initially, David Cameron, Cameron was very reluctant to increase the number of refugees, but eventually he did agree to take in more Syrian uh, refugees uh, as a result of this broad campaign. Similarly, in Australia, Get Up, which is a digital advocacy organisation, pushed to welcome more refugees in the Australian context. And the Conservative Prime Minister at the time, Tony Abbott, was not supportive and said, no, we're not going to do that in early September. Um, and they helped to organise. Get Up helped to organise a number of vigils around Australia. And, you know, over the course of several days, Tony Abbott also changed his position and agreed to accept on um, uh, more Syrian refugees. So there, there were these examples of change. Now, it's very hard as a social science scholar to say this one organization caused that outcome. They were part of a broader movement. So I wouldn't want your listeners to, to misinterpret what I'm saying. I am saying they were part of a movement of welcome refugees that happened across the world. But what's interesting about the role of digital advocacy organizations is that they can mobilize a broad spectrum of the population very quickly because they're not a specialist, just refugee advocate organization, and because they use digital tools. They can really rapidly contact their members. So that meant that they had an important role to play. Um, so there's some positive examples. Of course, what we also saw was massive backlash. And some of my other work, uh, I've looked with Alexandra Budabin um, at some of the backlash against the refugees welcome campaigns. And we saw counter campaigns of refugees not welcome uh, on Twitter, although they numbered a lot less than the positive refugee welcome campaigns. They, the, we did see some examples of the campaign being hijacked. So you, you've looked into the, the, the roles that a variety of different actors play within you know, the area of, of climate advocacy. You've looked in your work to bureaucrats and international organizations. You've looked then to, to activists. And so um, if you were an uh, aspiring policymaker or you know, an aspiring um, activist who wants to work um, within international organizations, or you want to uh, work, you know, in 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 activism. Um, how do you think they can best channel, you know, their their desire to 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 bring about positive change, um, uh, working like within these within within these spaces? Yeah, great um, open question there. It's a tricky one because different people have different perceptions of where their own roles are best, um, wh where they want to channel their energy and where they can make their contribution most effectively. Uh, there, there is a role for outsider theories of change, for outsiders mobilizing and organizing people to put pressure on their governments, which has been the work I've been doing in the last few years. Um, and I think that often gets... Uh, it's not often acknowledged by politicians, but in private, often politicians will say, we need people mobilizing to push us to be more active, say, on climate change. In New Zealand right now, we see that with the climate minister, James Shaw, trying to get greater action in terms of New Zealand's domestic 
emissions reductions, but really struggling. And I think people that I've spoken with within the Green Party saying, actually, we need a strong pressure from the public, people on the streets, uh, just like we saw with the youth climate strikes in the last few years, to demand that change, because that enables the people inside to take more uh, stronger and radical action, which we need to resolve climate change. Equally, you know, not everyone can be outside. We need people inside to then harness that energy and do something with it. And so I think that there's a real role in, in national, regional and international institutions. And what's important there, as I can imagine for many people at Blavatnik or working in this space, is that if you are working in those institutions, how to stay connected with a broad range of views. Because one of the big problems we've seen in the last four to five years is the sort of elite technocratic uh, governance, that then there's been a big backlash and questioning of whether elites within global institutions are actually serving the interests of the people uh, in various communities. And so we've seen scholarship on on, on sort of the rise of liberalism and, and the backlash to international institutions. So a real question, I think, is if you are working in those international institutions, how do you make sure you're talking to a broad range of people and not getting insulated so that as you develop your policies, um, you make sure that they are going to be able to have support so that they're not just seen as an imposition from some global elite. Well, Nina, you've, you've set out the challenges, but you've also set out a very uh, resounding message of hope for both uh, people who want to work on the inside with the system, but you've also shown if you want to work outside, that's an equally critical component um, of effective advocacy, especially on issues so contentious and so critical to the 21st century, such as climate change and displacement. Um, I just want to say thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, we all look forward to reading your book on transnational advocacy in the digital era when it comes out in, I believe, July 2022. It's June, but yeah, pretty close on. But June Okay, even it's even early July by the time it gets into the bookshops. So um, yeah, <laughs> hopefully there'll be one at Blackwells, and um, I'd be very happy to come back on in future and talk more about that book, or or in some other format with any of uh, of you who are interested. We would love to have you. Um, if you know, if you so, if you have gained any insights from this podcast and want to explore Nina's ideas further, I would thoroughly recommend her book. Um, on displacement, development, and climate change, as well as uh, the other, the other um, texts that she that she has mentioned during this podcast. Uh, thank you, Nina, for making this episode possible. Thanks so much, Roshan. It's been great, really great to talk with you. Fantastic. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Oxford Policy Pod. Join us next week for our final episode in our series of episodes celebrating Earth Month where my colleague Ujunwa Ojemeni will be speaking with experts on Africa's transition to green energy. This episode is hosted and researched by Roshan Milwani. Our executive producers are Livy Beha and Reid Leesk. To keep up with our latest, follow us on Twitter at Oxford Policy Pod and on Instagram at Oxford Policy Pod.